Episode 37, Patrick and Cyprian speak with Dr. Olivia Lanes, North American Lead for Kiskit and Education at IBM. Among other topics, the team discuss hardware-aware programming, computational advantage, and approaching education for quantum. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Hi, Cyprian. How you doing? Hi, Patrick. Very well. Ready for another great episode of Entangle Things. Well, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. We're joined by Olivia. Olivia, can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Olivia Lanes. Uh, my job title is the North American Lead for Kiskit and Education at IBM Quantum. Um, my background is in experimental physics. I did my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I graduated a few years ago, focused on quantum measurement. And now I like to do that in my copious free time whenever they let me into the labs at IBM. But I am also focused on our educational and community initiatives as well. So that means you're a programmer? Uh, I'm becoming a programmer. Yeah, I <laughs> It's confusing for me to even say that. Like, well, Welcome I'm, to the so, dark side. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm like a physics programmer. So like the code I write is not pretty unless I put in like a lot of effort into it. But well, then I'm you're doing it right. Pretty, yeah. pretty code is not good code, in my opinion. So, <laughs> so Cyprian and I are both programmers uh, to a large extent. Uh, you know, we do other things, but um, being, you know, Kiskit is very important and, and, and very, um, very fundamental to how we're going to get this in use. And so we talk a lot in the show about the technology and the, you know, the mic, the microwaves and things like that, but we're now getting to the point where people can just start using it. And so what are you seeing in that regard as far as, you know, skills and, and, and where we are on the spectrum of, of people being able to just grab it and start programming? What, what are the obstacles, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think we're on the verge of a huge paradigm shift, in my opinion. I mean, you get people like me who, you know, we I programmed when I was doing my PhD, but I programmed to control the electronics and stuff. And now there are people switching from being, you know, hardcore experimental or theoretical physicists and researchers to people who are able to play around with the systems and the quantum computers themselves without actually even being in the lab. And so, I mean, the challenges that go with that are that it's not, you know, a perfect system yet because all of the hardware is imperfect and it's noisy. And so the challenges that go with that are, well, you can't just sort of go in blind yet. It's not just this black box. You have to be what we call um, hardware aware of the technology in order to make best use of it. But I'm seeing a lot of people becoming more and more comfortable with this as, you know, we advertise it really as a system that you can do a lot with as long as you're sort of aware of the limitations and the challenges. So it, it, that it, that's the abstraction level that you're building, that we're building, that we're trying to get to is is make it so that you don't have to be as hardware aware or will that always be part of what we're doing, you think? I mean, I think there'll be different levels. There'll be, you know, all sorts of people throughout the stack of quantum computing. There will some people who are going to be working at the bottom who will always be hardware aware mm -hmm. and then make it seamless and easier for the people that don't want to or don't need to be completely aware of the fundamental physics going on that can still make use of it as well. So I think we will see that in the medium to near term. Cool. Um, 
one of the things I always bring up when I talk to somebody who's who's a in the programming side is we seem to have two algorithms to work <laughs> with. We've got Shores and we've got Grovers. And there's plenty to talk about there. We talk about them quite often, but I, I'm constantly on the lookout myself for a problem that is fundamentally hard for classical computers where another algorithm can slide in. And and I'm the next one, is, is there any candidates that you've heard of or any places that you think they're going to show up? Because Grovers and, and Shores are actually pretty old now. They're not new. They are, yeah. And, um, so, I mean, the funny thing about my work is that I work with neither Shores algorithm nor Grover's algorithm. I don't work with any like fundamental algorithms per se, but some of the work that I've been doing recently is in the field of quantum simulation, which I think is an area that we are going to see quantum advantage in the future. And basically this boils down to the fact that it's too computationally expensive and intensive for even supercomputers to be able to model complex quantum mechanical systems. But you can gain an advantage in terms of the cost on a quantum computer. So this is the stuff that I've been playing around with most recently. So you're talking about things like, you know, molecule modeling. Yeah. Things like that. So when you may not know this, I don't know if our listeners know this, but I got hooked on quantum by listening to, to Cyprian talk about that in one of his lectures many years ago. And he talked about how primitive our simulation is with classical computers and how qubits basically provide a perfect, almost one-to-one representation of where the electron could be. And so it will scale far beyond classical computing. Are you guys building frameworks to make that easier? Is it going to be something that I can adopt? Like for in web development, for example, we use, if I'm a Python developer, I'll use, um, um, Oh, I can't, like Flask or some of the other frameworks, and they make a lot of the underlying things easy. Are you guys working on frameworks so that I can use functionality that you guys have built rather than having to build it all from scratch? Is is that an approach that you're taking, or are we still earlier than that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say we have a full framework yet, but we have specific modules in Qiskit, like Qiskit Nature that's making it a lot simpler. So you don't need to know how to go in and like program a Hamiltonian that you want to simulate, for example, like completely by hand. We have certain modules and functions that can help you with that, but it's it's not a complete framework yet. So it's like walking into a kitchen that's got everything you need, but it's not they haven't started the baking process yet. <laughs> I would say that's a pretty good comparison. Yeah. And part of my job is to sort of give people the cookbook in this metaphor is to show people how to make whatever they want to make. Like researchers will come to me or members of my team and they're like, hey, have this great idea. I think it would work on a quantum computer. Theoretically, it has, you know, X, Y, and Z computational advantage, but um, I don't know how to get Qiskit to program it. (laughs) And then I show them all the ingredients and I say, you know, this is the best order to apply them in. This is the way to extract the best data. This is how you apply error mitigation. That's sort of all all the different types of things that I do in my job. Excellent. Very cool. So Um, Cyprian, do you want to go here? I've been hogging the conversation. when, When we talk to people about quantum, we essentially encounter like two major categories, right? It's the ones that we call born in quantum, which uh, have never been actually exposed too much to classical computing, right? So Mm -hmm. for them, it's fairly easy to grasp and to kind of live in the uh, world of concepts related to to quantum computing and to the the 
programming primitives that we have available today. And then we have the other much, much larger category who are folks who have a consistent background in classical computing, but for some reason they either want to switch over or they have a high interest in um, uh, understanding some of these some of these things, right? So I'm really curious about your take on on uh, how difficult do you think is already or is going to be for like this larger portion of of folks who need to kind of have this mental mindset switch, right, from mm-hmm. everything classical into into quantum? Do you think we we, do we have a fighting chance of, of helping these folks um, or the future is mostly going to be driven by what I call the like the quantum born generation? No, I, I think we have more than a fighting chance of bringing a bunch of these classical computational people into the quantum side. I think you do need to know some quantum computing. I mean, it might not be as much as we think it does. It is, but I think you definitely need to know some. People will probably disagree with me on that, but I'm always of the opinion, like, it's so cool. Why would you not want to know a little bit about it? Um, but I think we have so many educational initiatives and opportunities at this point that it, it's it takes less effort than than you would think. It's not as hard... As, as you would think. Yeah, we're, we're always looking for what's the minimum we can communicate. <laughs> and so you got to understand parallelism. You got to understand interference. You got to understand that there's some concepts you have to understand. It's almost like you have to understand how the bits work, the qubits work. Um, yeah, that- I mean, I think in the future, like you said, or like we talked about, you know, a few minutes ago, there will be a level of abstraction where that might not be necessary, but we're not there yet. No. Um, I don't know exactly when we will get there. And like I said, like, it's so cool. Like, why would you not want to know about it? <laughs> I, I believe it'll happen June f- 5th, but I will not say the year. Um, so, <laughs> or the century for that no, matter. <laughs> well, you know, that goes with it. That goes with it. Um, so do you guys have like a hello world of, of simulation? Like, can I go use Kiskit and go say, I want to simulate water, 10 electrons, pretty simple. Yeah. Um, or deuterium or some, something simple. Is is there a hello world version of that that somebody could go and play around with and get started with? There is a very simple basic tutorial on um, kisskit.com right now. But if I can plug myself just very briefly, Please. I didn't try to do this, but we, my team is planning to publish uh, an article very soon. It'll be up on the archive within the next month that is going to be sort of a how-to guide for any Hamiltonian that you want to simulate. As long as you have a Hamiltonian I'm going to tell you how to simulate it on a quantum computer. Wow. And it, and will you guys, if I can suggest, will you guys give a, a couple of examples of simple Hamiltonians people can go and try their, cut their teeth on? Yeah. So we're going to work through like the Heisenberg Hamiltonian and the tight binding Hamiltonian, which is basically just like a string of electrons that okay. have some sort of coupling in between them. And you can adjust the coupling strength depending on like what you're interested okay. in, things like that yep. and the number of electrons. But yeah, those are very simple models that's easy to get started with right away. So our audience is consistent of many scientists in the field and also many people trying to understand the field. So I just want to clarify, um, this has nothing to do with the play Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> Hamiltonian is, in my understanding, more about the, the total energy of a system. That's right. And, yeah. Unfortunately, nothing to do with Hamilton, the musical. I hope that's my next career, though. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a, it, that was a great play. Um, so 
I think that's actually very, very important because what we need more of is, is examples for people to understand and get their hands dirty and play around with it. Um, do you need more than a browser to play with Kiskit? Um, I mean, no, not really. Like you can do everything on, um, the virtual labs online. I always recommend, like, I think it's better to, you know, pip install Kiskit and, you know, play around with the Jupyter notebook. I think you get your hands a little bit more dirty that way, but, uh, it's not too much more effort. Cool. And anybody in the world can make an account and you can log on and with your little key, your username, you can run any of your simulations on, you know, one of, I think like 15, I forget the exact number of the quantum computers that IBM has on the cloud right now. So what, one of the things that, that we also see with folks is um, it, it seems to them like daunting to, to, to start with, right? And uh, we often see folks like, oh, I have such a hard time, I don't know, understanding the inner workings of whatever. The, the Shores algorithm or the quantum Fourier transform or, or, or whatever. So if you were in a position, let's say, to to, to guide or mentor somebody, um, mm-hmm. like what would be the one, two, three sequence that you would recommend? Like, okay, start with this and then move to this and then move to this. Because I've often seen folks trying to get grasp of the very complex or the, the more complex concepts, like, I don't know, amplitude amplification or, or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, it's virtually impossible to understand that unless you have some basic understanding of, of some of the other like quantum computing primitives, right, um, uh, that are out there. So what would be like this happy path yeah. uh, using Qiskit um, for someone who would, let's say, like to start in this world and... That's a great question. Gradually increase their their knowledge. Yeah, really good question. So I will answer it. And but first, let me just say, fear is paralyzing, right? Like we never want to be afraid of trying something new or something that is interpreted as hard because we're afraid of it. I have made this mistake many times in my life. I don't recommend it. (laughs) Um, I think the best place to start is honestly with the Kiskit textbook online because it's written at a very introductory level. I think it's really not intimidating. It's written in simple language. It's not written like a textbook that you might, you know, go to the library and take from like your local university. And you can basically interact with it on your web browser and see examples of code and open them in the Kiskit lab or on your desktop on a Jupyter notebook and mess around with it and play around with the code yourself. And just taking these little steps makes you start thinking about it more and more. There are also, you know, homework problems and challenges at the end to get you to think about even more. Obviously, the best way to learn when you're doing this is don't look up the answer, like really just sit in the uncomfortableness of not knowing and really try to give it your best effort. And then from the Kiskit textbook, I recommend trying a challenge or a contest. IBM's not the only company who does this. There are other, you know, companies and startups who do these types of challenges as well, but I'm just going to talk about the ones that I'm involved with because it's what I know best. Um, so we have challenges twice a year in the spring and the fall that begin at an introductory level. And then, you know, through one, two, three, or four different problems and at a pretty intermediate, sophisticated level. And if you can work through those, they're generally offered over the course of a week or two. 
then you have like a pretty good understanding where you should be able to translate your skills from, I would say, a novice level to at least an intermediate level. From there, it's great if you can find a mentor um, or a study group. We have, you know, open Slack communities where you can find these types of people, or you can reach out to your favorite IBMer or your favorite person in the field and ask for mentorship and try to start a project. The best way to learn quantum computing is by doing quantum computing. So read a little bit, gain that base knowledge, and then go try to do a project. And mm-hmm. you will learn a hundred times more than you thought you could because you will run into a billion challenges and obstacles and you have to figure out how to overcome each and every one of them. And every time you do that, you are you know, significantly closer to becoming a researcher in the field. I, I would be so time. much, I'd be so impressed if I saw that on a resume because it, it, it it means somebody's actually digging in and trying to do stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard, I think, to be an independent learner, but it's totally possible. You yeah. just have to have the internal motivation. Yes. Um, so w- the note to the listeners, we we do record these a little bit in advance, so I think your article might be out by the time this publishes, and we can put that uh, link and other links that we're talking about in the um, the notes. Um, but we also can update them when it comes out. So if uh, if the, the uh, this episode publishes before that article is up there, please check back and uh, we'll make sure we, we put a, a copy of it uh, available there. Um, That's great. Thanks. No problem. IBM, you guys are doing a lot of crazy things with chips. Uh, when I when I look at the adiabatic quantum computing and D-Wave, they, you know, they talk about a lot of qubits, but they're not doing universal quantum computing, what you guys are doing. You guys have announced the, um, a chip that you're selling now uh, with over 100 qubits and talking about 1,000 qubits at the end of 2023. Um, so is that changing the language? Is that is there going to be is there going to be is that going to be a, uh, a big change for for you as a programmer or is that pretty much already abstracted away? No, I think it will change things. Um, certainly, it's easier to work with fewer numbers of qubits when you're individually going in and typing in gates by hand. So it'll just depend on what you want to do. Um, I haven't thought too much about how my life will change, to be honest, when I start working with the giant processors, because Mm -hmm. right now I haven't done more than like 16 personally, because for the experiments that I'm interested in, it's really about squeezing the most out of a small number of qubits rather than applying what I'm interested in to a vast number of qubits, but and, I think it will definitely change. And most of your, all of our careers, there's been only a small number of qubits. So we're, we're coming into the middle, middle ages of, of quantum computing. By the end of this decade, uh, we'll be in the thousands, tens of thousands, I, I would hope. And yeah, we actually had so. guests talking about trying to solve problems to get to the million of qubits sooner and each each level each order of magnitude probably has different challenges yeah that's for sure true and i know that right now the the groups that are really interested in the 100 plus qubit devices are like the error correcting groups which as i'm sure you know is sort Mm. of like the next big thing that we require to make a jump into the future error correction um that's not what i do i don't do anything on error correction but i know you can start playing around with the processors that we have of that specific size for these purposes right now. Cool. Very cool. So 
on on that on that note of, of the, the the increasing right of the of the number of, of qubits, I'm uh, just curious how how do you see the 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 evolution of the of the field in general? I mean, one of the things that I try to convince people is that at least in the foreseeable future, quantum computing is not going to replace classical computing, right? It's it's yeah. going to augment special or specific parts of classical computing which are kind of suffering from the lack of, of enough computing power, but probably we won't have our, I don't know, quantum cell phone in the next decade in our pockets, or we won't have our quantum computer running uh, under our desk I agree. Uh, as we do with with with, with classical, right? right. So, um, how like how do you see this relationship between between classical and and quantum like developing maybe in the in the next couple of decades? Yeah. Um, first of all, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, if you know me, if you follow me online at all, you'll know I'm very anti quantum hype. Um, I love quantum computing. I think it's a fascinating emerging technology. I think it will change the future. But I'm still very anti-hype for you know some of the reasons that you mentioned. I don't think we're going to have a quantum computing desktop or a quantum computing cell phone. I don't even know what the purpose of that would be. They but there be. are there are companies who say they're working on it. And I'm just like I don't know why. Um, <laughs> so I firmly believe that quantum computers are going to be you know accessible throughout the cloud. I think this this is the future that we're going to be able to see. I don't think necessarily every single person is going to have a quantum computer in their house. Because no. why, why would you do that? Because you can use a classical computer for all of the purposes that you're interested. It's just a typical average human being going about their day. It's perfectly fine for that. Unless you're trying to do one of the few several problems that we know that quantum computers are advantageous at, uh, you don't need one. So well, why not just rent some time? Even the things it's good at, it's good at it because you pair it with classical computing. Shor's yeah. algorithm doesn't break RSA encryption. It allows a classical computer to have a hint so it can. Yeah, it's exactly what you said. We have to pair excellent classical computing control and software with the quantum computing processors. You know, one's not going to succeed without the other. And that's one of the things that I really like about IBM is that not only is it a full stack company looking at the software, the classical control, and the experimental hardware, but the fact that all of these groups communicate with each other really, really well, and they sort of play off of one another. Like nobody's working in a silo. Right. Yeah, it, it's one of the challenges. People think that it might replace classical computing, but that's like saying a video card is going to replace the processor. They have different roles. They have different abilities and there's you know we don't need a new processor for email we need a new processor for calculating the size of the universe that's right yeah your email is good the way it is email's fine you know as long as it doesn't crash it's all good no too many unread messages that's the only problem well quantum computer's not gonna help with that i can't help you with that either (laughs) and i i i think one of the interesting areas that it's still under, let's say, a lot of development today is identifying those specific classes of problems that can benefit from uh, uh, quantum computing uh, applications, right? Because I I think we identified a few 
but I think the jury is still out there for a lot of a lot of problems that we we have for which it's not yet clear whether you could gain some quantum advantage or uh, or 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 not. Right. The other interesting thing that I see is, uh, and uh, just let me say that I totally applaud your stand on the hype because I've seen hype doing a lot of harm throughout the history of computer science, right? Many, many, many times, right? Every time kind of hype takes over, then problems follow. So one of the things that I see, for example, is because everybody talks about how the quantum computers will be able to calculate the universe, folks kind of automatically infer that a quantum computer is actually faster than a classical computer, right? Which is Really not the case. If you look at the number of operations and things like that, right? I mean, quantum computers in terms of that are significantly slower than than than, than classical than classical computers. And there's also this talk about quantum supremacy, right? Everybody claims it and 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 and, and so forth. So I was I'm curious about uh, how do you see this the uh, this this area developing on how can we get better and and what what is what do you think will happen in terms of better narrowing down those specific classes of problems that are worth kind of investigating are worth kind of spending time money effort so forth um in in trying to model with quantum computing yeah well right now i don't think we're at the point where we need to sort of narrow down our focus yet i think we're sort of still at the point of the throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks sort of model Mm -hmm. and i think the best way to continue along this path for right now is to hire the smartest the best people with very interdisciplinary backgrounds i really think that an interdisciplinary focus is key to finding these applications. It's a really, really, really hard problem. And if you talk to, you know, quantum algorithm algorithm developers, they'll tell you it's just, it's incredibly difficult because quantum co- or classical computing is already pretty good. So you have a pretty high barrier that you have to surpass in order to gain any type of quantum advantage. So I think whether we're looking at quantum machine learning or finance or biology or chemistry, I think we need to bring in people who have skills in not only quantum computing and computer science, but that specific application area as well. Um, And that's honestly one of the things I really like about the field is that it's so interdisciplinary and that people with backgrounds that you wouldn't necessarily think would be appropriate in the quantum computing landscape are actually key. And it's fundamental to have people who specialize in quantum chemistry on the team because they're the ones who I think have the best chance of finding some of these useful applications. We we had a show recently um, where we talked to somebody who had a serendipitous communication with uh, a, a language expert. And the language expert, after being told how quantum models work, said that's language modeling. And they started a collaboration to talk about quantum-based you know, universal translator for lack of a better, um, better word. So it, it's, we precisely, we don't know what we don't know yet. We don't know, you know, like I said, there's only a couple of algorithms out there. There's only a few problem sets that we know how to approach, but there's an infinite space that we haven't figured out yet. Yeah. And so we need to start. I, I, I like the spaghetti against the wall thing. Um, it sounds messy because it is, but that's how we're going to get faster progress. 
Yep. And I, whenever people ask me what my favorite application of quantum computers is, I always tell them, you know, I hope it's something I've never even thought of yet. (laughs) I think we're still at the point where we're going to develop new applications that are going to blow our minds. And I hope that whatever I'm excited about now, there's going to be something 10 times more exciting in the future. So the things that I think, you know, people are looking at now are awesome. I think we're going to see some cool applications from it. But I think the space that we're looking is going to expand even wider. I think you're right. And and I think we have like, uh, if we look uh, uh, back into history, right, we have we had a lot of proof of that with, with classical computing, right? I remember like the the old days of I don't know the games that we were we were playing on the uh, early processors and on the early computers, right? If you compare those with like the metaverse-based uh, interactive games like with VR today, right? It's it's like the difference is unbelievable. If you were to show those things back. Uh, then, like they would have probably uh, be be seen like like magic or or, or right. wizardry, like right? Magic. So uh, there is no reason to believe that quantum computing will not follow a similar path, as you right. were saying, right? Yeah. The stuff that we see today, like oh my god, we can factor the number fifteen, right? And this is amazing. Okay, um, if we will compare this with what will probably happen in maybe 10, 20 years, 30 years from now, um, it's uh, probably going to be fundamentally different. One of the things that that both Patrick and I love to say about the first generation of quantum computers is their probably their main kind of application will be to help build the second generation mm-hmm. of, 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 quantum, of quantum computers. So I would like to ask you along those, those, those lines, like how do you see the 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 hardware part, not necessarily from the kind of inner details of the different uh, modalities and technique to build them, but do do you feel like the the hardware part is is evolving fast enough? Um, I'm always kind of trying to 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 go back to history, as I said, right? I'm looking how the uh, evolution of the classical computers happened, and we've had like long, pretty long times of plateaus. And then all of the sudden there were bursts, like like huge increases, and then we got Moore's law and 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 so forth. And as a kind of side note, uh, side question to that: Do you think we will have some kind of of Moore's law equivalent in quantum computing? Yeah. So um, to address the question first, I do think the hardware is progressing fast enough. I think if you look at the roadmaps that IBM and other companies have laid out. Like you'll see, they're very um, optimistic and very long spaced in time. I mean, I think IBM's goes out to 2030. And when I joined and I saw these roadmaps two years ago, I was like, wow, we're really going to make, you know, processors that have over a thousand qubits in three years. Like that sounds really hard. Are we sure we're going to do that? But every single time we set one of these goals, we meet it. And this really speaks to the strength of our engineering and our scientific teams. They're incredible. So I do think that every time we set a goalpost, we will continue to meet it. We have a trajectory and a history of doing that. Um, 
I'm trying to remember what your second question was. Forgive me. It's just a side question along the, do we, we do you think we'll have an equivalent oh, of Moore's law, law in, in, so, in quantum? And how, how might that look? <laughs> so I don't know, because one thing that I will say is that this is very much not an engineering problem yet. Some people like to say quantum computing is just an engineering problem. And to that, I say, like, you've never really been in a quantum computing lab, have you? Um, <laughs> because it's very much a fundamental physics problem still right now. And sort of going back to our last question, actually, one of the reasons that I got into quantum computing was not just because of the cool applications in chemistry and finance. And, you know, that stuff's all really cool. That's actually not why I got into it. I got into it because... I thought that quantum computers and the type of research that was going into making quantum computers would tell us more about the fundamental nature of reality. And I have always been fascinated with quantum mechanics on like a fundamental level. And so I think that we still have fundamental physics to learn and discover about entanglement and the like. So I don't think we can necessarily predict whether there's going to be a Moore's law equivalent yet until we are sort of bridging the gap between, oh, this is, you know, an interesting research physics problem to this is an engineering problem now. Once we have it and it's an engineering problem, I'm putting quotes you can't see, but, but I'm quoting, I have quotes, air quotes, mm. then I think we'll be able to see some sort of Moore's law development. So we're, we're seeing a Moore's law-like progression. Um, for example, you know, just that, just if you just look at the roadmap for IBM on processors um, in the next few years, we're, we're on we're on an actual faster than Moore's law curve, right. and that's probably because we know so little about this space. It's it's so new. There's so much left to be discovered, and we also have this great benefit of we saw how this develops uh, with classical computing, and so we know what has to come next for it to be successful. Um, and so we get the benefit of the past and, uh, you know, looking back at the past as well as, you know, experimenting with the future. Um, so it, it, it's interesting to think about the fact that if we're not in a Moore's law situation, we might feel like we are for a while and then we'll hit a roadblock where it's like, we'll, we'll be stuck at a million qubits for maybe, I think it will look something like that. That's right. I mean, I think you can look at like the trajectory of like quantum volume measurements and you can see like, oh, we're doubling the quantum volume every few years. And that sort of looks like Moore's law. And that's great. It means we're, you know, making steady progress. But I think we will see sort of this ebb and flow, like you were saying, where it looks like maybe we're stuck, but we're actually at the point of a breakthrough. Yeah. It's like kids. My, my kids would always Re- reverse revert before they would accelerate forward <laughs> and uh you know it's, it's it's familiar in a lot of things and sometimes you feel the most lost in a course just before you get it i and totally so, agree i mean yeah. i think the part when you are most confused when you is when you're about to discover something new right yeah well especially in this because i tell people um if you don't understand entanglement then you probably do understand it because if you thought you understood it then you probably don't yeah, I mean, that's a whole things. lot like, um, oh, I forget well, who it was. One of the interesting, <laughs> interesting differences from my point of view, if we look again at the historical perspective between the evolution of classical computing and, and, and quantum computing is that somehow classical computing was never kind of intrinsically tied to fundamental research in physics, right? There was mm-hmm. some kind of relationship, but... Uh, then, like, 
as soon as we moved out of the lamps and we started with transistors, right, it become, as you said, pretty much an engineering kind of thing, right? But what I feel about quantum computing is that there is this kind of fundamental back and forth between fundamental physics and research and quantum computing. And I think the two of them are already influencing each other. Um, we've had, for instance, a guest, um, I think, Patrick, it was from uh, from the Jet Proportion Laboratory. Yes. Or, yeah, uh, Jet Proportion they, Laboratory. Right. They mentioned about some initiatives in quantum that actually opened some very interesting kind of directions and theories in fundamental research. So I'm curious to, 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 to hear your take on, do you believe that there is also kind of a, a back channel from quantum computing to fundamental research? Do you think um, quantum computers will be able to play a role in these, let's say, lowest, uh, most fundamental types of, of, of research that we have in, 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 in physics, understanding kind of the very fabric of matter, energy, the universe. Do you think we can get help or it's a little bit higher than that, the area or the level where quantum computers will be able to help? No, I think it will. I think it will be able to help. So in graduate school, um, I did similar work with superconducting qubits. I mean, we didn't have more than like one or two qubits in the fridge at a time because this was a graduate student lab and we weren't looking at that. Mm -hmm. But we did experiments to look at something called weak measurement versus what you are probably more familiar with as a typical quantum computing measurement, which is strong or projective measurement. And we did this with the same components that are in a quantum computer. We did it with a qubit, a parametric amplifier, um, a dill fridge, and we looked at you know what it meant on a fundamental level to interact with a quantum mechanical object a little bit <laughs> instead of a lot, instead of like a full measurement. Like, what if we just like you know poked it? And this told us a lot about what entanglement was and what it can do and you know, um, I think the experiment was done first previously, maybe four or five years at a lab in Yale and people didn't understand the results. And we had to go consult with theorists and be like, Hey, what does this mean? You know, I don't understand what this qubit is telling me. So I think we will be able to gleam more insight into physics in general from quantum computing experiments. That would be like compute developing computers teaching us more about electricity and electrical engineering. So that's yeah. a, that's a definitely a difference here. That's something we didn't have in the last round. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, super yeah. interesting. Um, we're kind of running low on time. It's gone by very quickly, which means that you know this has been an easy conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to get in and say? I know you said you didn't want to do advertising, but you know <laughs> you're doing important work. We want to make sure that we surface that. Is there? Other than the links that we're going to provide to some of the things you've talked about, is there anything else you'd like to highlight? Um, well, I started a website recently. I think I'm going to try to share some tips on how to break into the quantum computing workforce or to just become a better quantum computing scientist and community member on my website. Um, it's not fully formed yet, but if you're interested, you can check it out. It's just livelanes.com. Um, it's just my nickname. So nice. you can check that out there. Um, yeah. And in general, I think I'm going to just try to talk about different skills that are needed, how to acquire them and how to become, you know, a better, a better scientist. 
I think that's an excellent. I think that would be pursuit. extremely useful. Yeah, that's that's um, the that's the, the that's yeah. the most important thing we can all be doing right now. So I'm, I'm let us know how we can help, and we'll keep the podcast rolling. Um, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great discussion.